Every week, every day, there are discoveries that will shape our future. The Research Beat, brought to you by Audemic, speaks to the unsung heroes of groundbreaking research and those laying the foundations for the advances of tomorrow. Why? Because we believe the more we discover, the more we connect the dots, the more we push our understanding of the world forward. One, two, three, four. Hello, curious minds, and a very warm welcome to The Research Beat with me, your host, Jordan Krasinski. Today's guest is Edward Clark, poet and tutor at the Department of Continuing Education at the University of Oxford in English Literature and Art History. Edward, welcome to the show. Thank you very much, Jordan. It's great to be here. So, Edward, let's go straight into our first section, Research Focus. And could you give us an overview of what you're currently working on? Well, I've just recently published a, a book of poems called Cherubims, uh, which is very much a kind of uh, sequel or companion piece to a, a previous collection called A Book of Psalms. And that, that was a book of poetry which had uh, research at its heart um, in that it was engaged very closely with the Book of Psalms in the Bible. Um, it's a collection of 150 poems, each one engaging in a kind of conversation with um, a psalm in the Bible. They're not versifications, but they are kind of hesitations about the ancient texts. Um, in many ways, the, the writing of the book, which took several years, felt like a kind of an initiation, if you like, into the, the mysteries of these texts. Um, and uh, thinking of them sort of organized as a, as a kind of an initiatic cave almost in the Bible. And so there was research at the heart of that, um, I even ended up uh, sort of learning Hebrew for a bit um, to engage even more closely with the, the Masoretic text. I was also reading a lot of um, co commentaries and, and midrash, ancient um, interpretation of the, of the books. I was also a member of the Oxford Sa Psalms Network as well, organised through the university and going to lectures by Susan Gillingham and others in, in town. And I suppose um, once I'd kind of worked out what, what the poem needed to be, then I would sort of leave that, that research alone and, and sort of switch allegiance, if you like, to, to the poem that's emerging. Um, I suppose I was dr drawing on habits of interpretation that I developed during my PhD and the writing of you know, critical books after that. Um, I've written critical books about the vagabond spirit of poetry and the later affluence of um, Yeats and Stevens, which, which come out of my research at Trinity College in my 20s on, on Wallace Stevens and, you know, poetic illusion. There, I guess, I, I, you know, I wasn't so much looking at manuscripts going into that kind of scholarly research, but kind of reading Heidegger or Augustine, Kierkegaard, and using that as a framework to kind of go back in and critically analyze Stevens and get, engage with him imaginatively speaking. I'm also about to put a book into production um, called The Secret Mind of Art, um, my first art history book. And there I, I, I was engaged in, in research, um, writing 12 chapters on very famous works of art. And that, that book felt very much as if I was sort of giving myself a degree and a PhD in the subject and then breaking that apart to write something that people actually could read 
outside of academia. So that that was a kind of labour of love written during the, the second lockdown we had a couple of years ago, um, involving me, I suppose, buying thousands of pounds worth of art history books online and devouring them quite 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 rapidly to to come to a certain level of critical engagement with those works. So it's a really fascinating multi-leveled approach where you're going off and doing many different things and then pulling all of that experience back in to work on the central work, whether it's poetry, whether it's writing a book or something else. So when you're doing this, when you're carrying out this research for poetry or a book, how does it work day to day? It's obviously very different from research in science, from research in something like maths, isn't it? No, for sure. I, 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 yes, exactly. I, I feel like I'm proceeding with a kind of unifying vision, but the expression of that takes quite diverse forms in my published work, but also in, in my life as, as, as well. And kind of trying to live in a holistic way, if you like. So I, I mean, Francis Bacon said, you know, reading makes a full man, conversation makes a ready man, and writing makes an exact man. And I try to live my life so that I'm kind of balancing those three things. So I'm neither too, so that I'm kind of full, ready and, and exact. Um, and you know, my, my writing very, very much draw, draws upon the conversations that I'm lucky enough to have teaching here in, in Oxford with younger and older people, you know, younger undergraduates visiting the town from, from America and elsewhere and also older people at the Department for Continuing Education. Um, so, yeah, but at the same time, obviously, I'm trying to read as well. So the, the three things sort of are, are tied together in that way. But also, of course, the expressions of my research in poetry, art, history, books and English literature um, yeah, are, are also superficially quite diverse. But I think at the end of the day, actually, on, on the same path, perhaps also coming out of frustrations that I have, you know, with academia and, and discourse as, as well perhaps trying to deepen, for example, in the Book of Psalms, deepen my approach to sacred texts, finding ultimately that the, the rational discourse wasn't quite enough. We may touch on mm. some of those particular interests a little bit later, but can you tell us how you moved from your PhD, which obviously involved more sort of typical research, mm. towards this kind of work that you're doing now, which really well, is on another level? Yeah, sure. Um, well, in some ways, um, the, the movement is, is me not pursuing a conventional academic career after my PhD, um, not going into a postdoc or suddenly get, getting a job as an assistant professor in those sort of years immediately afterwards. And actually, you know, um, sort of fo following a girl to Oxford and, and getting work first of all as a gardener and a librarian in the town just to make ends meet and feeling that that might be a worthwhile thing to do in itself. And eventually picking up work, teaching art history, you know, at um, grammar schools in, in the town and, and, and then tutoring uh, undergraduates as I was qualified to, to do. And so I suppose in, in some ways that this is the brute necessity of having to earn a, a living for, forced me into a kind of diversification at that point, which by this stage actually feels like it's, you know, incorporated in, into the kind of vision that I have. So, yes, um, there, there's that playing itself out. Although, of course, in, in the back of my mind, during these days of slight un, unemployment and, you know, um, coming to terms with what it means to get a proper academic job, I was also thinking, 
I need to, I do need to publish that monograph. I do need to t turn that PhD thesis into a book. Um, and, and my first book sort of comes out of that, that, that dark period, if you like. It's a wonderfully romantic <laughs> career progression. <laughs> romantic or crooked. <laughs> um, yeah, absolutely. But I feel stronger as, as a result of it, actually, in, intellectually, in, in mm. some ways, I must admit. It's, it's forced me to be ingenious and, and shrewd and perhaps forced me into a more hermetic approach, I think, to the subject. I think that's a really nice illustration of what you've, what you've been through. And it's very nice to bring in external experiences and the necessities of life into your academic work, because sometimes academia is completely shut off from the outside world. Yeah, and I think I'm continually rebelling against certain aspects of, you know, academia that would shut you off in, in some ways, you know, within a discipline, I think, you know, dur during the writing of a PhD, for example, you're encouraged to sort of shut yourself almost off from the rest of the discipline into increasing in specialization to find an original line of inquiry. And I kind of reacted against that after the first year of studying Wallace Stevens by thinking that I, I might want to write about him in, in relationship to Shakespeare and Milton and everything else that I've read and pursue poetic illusion as a way in as much as I might want to pursue, you know, um, continental philosophy of the early 20th century. So I was, I was always trying to broaden my interests as, as much as, as I was being forced into a kind of specialization. And yes, afterwards, I think, you know, um, I, I, I'm really happy actually since, you know, finishing my PhD, I've had the opportunity to teach students from the age of probably about 13 right through to people in their 80s. You, um, and, and I've been teaching in a variety of situations, not just in the rarefied, you know, atmosphere of, of an Oxford college to sort of hotshot undergraduates. I've been trying to make a living sometimes teaching, you know, GCSE, English, art, history, A-level, as much as running creative writing workshops with octogenarians and, and teaching hotshot undergraduates from Harvard and Oxford and elsewhere. So for me, it's quite important to have that, that range. So do you think that you went through a kind of disillusionment with research as most people know it? I absolutely um, did. And, and again, on, on multiple levels. Yeah, I think personally, I was d d deeply disillusioned with rational discourse and the essay as, as a means of, of profound engagement with literary texts. And I think I understand with like even people like Christopher Ricks, but you know Matthew Arnold, that the the the, the best response to a poem is another poem. Um, and I think you know my my twenties and early thirties are are are, are a, a record of me coming to terms with that and understanding really what my vocation is. I mean, after all, I, I kind of probably went into a, a PhD after Oxford, um, after sort of a year of unemployment in London, thinking I just actually need a break from that and, and looking, as, looking at, uh, you know, a PhD as a way of sort of keeping the world of work away so I could read a bit more, if you like. Um, so, yes, I, I, I don't think I ever went in with the highest hopes um, but I definitely became disillusioned with, with the essay as a means of, of engaging with, with, with writers. Um, and perhaps also just personally realising I didn't want to spend my life as a critic. And that really wasn't my vocation. Um, and there were other things I needed to do. And, and actually kind of understanding that poets like George Herbert, John Donne, um, and, and even later sort of Wordsworth and, and Coleridge, perhaps people who 
suffered sort of profound professional setbacks in the early phases of their career, actually derailing them altogether. George Herbert, perhaps, you know, leaving his glittering academic career in Cambridge behind through illness or whatever it was. John Dunn running off with his boss's niece and, and disgracing himself so much he was sacked and really prevented from proper occupation. Wordsworth coming out of Cambridge with a mediocre degree, no sense of what he wanted to do in the world apart from be, be a poet. And actually, I think you've got to kind of, kind of got to fail a bit, really, you know, at, at, at that to find out really what you are. And I, you know, I was a bright young scholarship lad at school, you know, on that kind of conveyor belt through that. Oxford's PhD by the time I'm 28. Um, and at that point, I think suddenly thinking, hold on, <laughs> I may be in the wrong game slightly um, in terms of, you know, wanting to be a sort of straight up academic all my life and stepping back from that, failing a bit and understanding what, I, what I'm capable of in, in the process. Some really, really interesting points there, particularly on the essay as a form of expression, academic expression. Because yeah. In other subjects, it sits very comfortably. It's the natural way to talk mm. about your findings, your data, your research. Then yeah. Within the humanities and perhaps particularly within literature, to sort of be confined by the essay as a means of expression. Yeah. When yeah. many people who study literature are quite poetically minded and quite expressive. No, it's, it's, but, a very, it's a very interesting point. No, I, I, I agree. I mean, the essay it, itself, in, in a way, is a form of literature. And one thinks about Michelle de Montaigne and the history of it and... You know, come, you know the, the 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 trials that he was making of himself, even writing his essays, and so I mean, and there are great essays, many great essays that ha have been written. Um, so yeah, you know, I remember our old tutor would would say before schools, you know, that it was an art form. We get get the first sentence right and rattle it off after that. You know, maybe have a glass of champagne before you go in. Remember, check off. There was no champagne after the wedding. Get a write a, an opening line as good as that and you can't go wrong kind of thing. There's that kind of panache, I think, that, that can be there in, in, the, in the essay as a form of literature. And certainly nowadays, you know, I'm marking so many essays in my job. I, I, I kind of understand its usefulness as a means of assessment. For sure, if you're trying to uh, award a degree, it's actually quite a useful, you can mark it quite objectively. And that is useful, I think. And And, and certainly you can see people who are better at it than, than others, um, and, it, and it can demonstrate how much work you've been been doing and how much you've been reading. I think, um, but I think, yeah, once you get to the point of a PhD, and you know, um, and the original line of inquiry that's kind of encouraged for you to pursue there, I do begin to slightly question it. Um, you know, and the, the sort of the book is also, and the proliferation of books that sort of you, that you get in, in, in modern academia too, kind of walling around the, the, the poets that we have, perhaps rather than really explicating them. Um, yeah, I think one, one does begin to feel seriously hampered by it. Personally, I started to feel actually sort of physically sick and lightheaded the, the more I, the more I wrote of academic prose. Mm. Um, it was almost like manifesting as a physical aversion yeah. to it. And I, and I, and I had to stop. <laughs> wow. Extremely interesting. Yeah. And keeping all of that in mind, do you think that this sort of stricter academic research sits less comfortably within the humanities than it does within science and maths, for example? I think so. And I think, I mean, my, my discipline, and my, the two disciplines really that I pursue, art history and English literature, both emerge in the late 19th century. Um, and they're very much informed by the assumptions of that period 
sort of scientific materialism and empiricism. Um, and they've grown up within that. And I think they're always slightly uncomfortable with those assumptions at times. Um, they're susceptible to fads and fashions. And I think they kind of need to turn themselves inside out at this stage and wonder where they sit within the university and, and whether they want to just keep aping the sciences as they have been since their inception, or whether they can establish themselves as, you know, imaginative things in themselves that can teach the sciences a thing or two, whether they could kind of come of age, have a bit more confidence with the university and actually put reason to work in such a way that it becomes useful for us as a culture. I, you know, I, I, I feel, you know, that we're, we're, we're kind of, scared of learning from literature in my discipline you know I, I i think we sort of you know maintain a kind of um slightly pernicious and falsifying objectivity you know um and i guess there's a nervousness um that that, that, that we're not serious enough if we, if we don't do that you know because the standards that are set up to judge that seriousness have been established through the sciences that are far more successful as disciplines in the contemporary world but why should we ape them? Why, why can't we assert ourselves more strongly? And perhaps, you know, um, the sciences need to learn a, a thing or two from us, that they need to be put to work by, by the arts. Um, you know, I mean, Edwin Muir talks about a kind of uh, imbalance of progressional development in, in the modern world, that reason and technology and science have developed in, in incredible or inspiring ways. But the arts and works of imagination have kind of marked time or perhaps even kind of regressed during this period. You know, so what can my discipline do to kind of help help them regain their sovereign seat in the heart, if you like, and, and put reason and science to work in a productive way? I feel like when science and reason get the upper hand, they're kind of seeking slightly to destroy works of imagination. And I can see that in the marginalization of the arts and our culture a bit. Um, the infantilization of it slightly as well. Um, but what about if imagination can assert itself and put science and reason to work? Maybe then they will provide a way out of the myriad problems that we face in, in the world. One, two, three, four. The Research Beat is brought to you by the Audemic app, a platform for students and researchers which allows you to listen to academic articles and take notes easily. On the go and simple to share. So, Edward, we move on to the second section, mm. burning issues. And this is where we talk about those issues which are really at your heart in academia and perhaps mm. really setting on fire. So you've chosen to talk about evolution and progress mm. within academia and what they really mean. Mm. Well, I got very frustrated with seeing the word evolution being used by art historians um, when I was reading all those expensive books I was buying to write my last book. Um, and I started thinking to myself, why should this term that, you know, comes out of essentially Darwin and, you know, assumptions about the that natural world be applicable to sacred art? And, and why also should, you know, we think about it in terms of progress, which is essentially a sort of an enlightenment model. Um, you know, the more one looks at, you know, sacred art and sort of thinks about it from, I suppose, ancient Rome, as I was right through to the early 20th century, 
one could just as well think about it in terms of decline as well as progress. But every single art, art historian from the time of, you know, Vasari in the 16th century to Honor and Fleming in the late 20th century thinks about it as some amazing kind of progression. Um, but why not put in a, a conflicting view? I think it really kind of interestingly co complicates the story that we like to tell ourselves. I mean, you could argue from a traditional perspective that we live in an Iron Age, um, the, a, a kind of Kali Yuga, if you like, a, a Dark Age, the end times. You know, um, Hesiod would have seen, you know, history in terms of a golden age declining to a silver, to a bronze, and then to an iron, and the iron being the very worst. And I think, you know, in many ways, I see the Iron Age as a sort of manifesting itself in the early 17th century. And only an Iron Age, I think, could conceive of history as progress and improvement. And that might ev even be a, a symptom of the fact that we are in a, a very dark age, that we could be so narrow-minded as to see it in those terms. Um, so, yes, th that's why I wanted to talk about these words, because I was getting a bit upset about seeing them used in a kind of rather unthinking way by many, many great art historians, actually. And I think it sort of shows how unchallenged the assumptions of our age are in, in disciplines like art history and English literature. We just kind of rely upon them without turning upon them. And I feel like these, um, I feel like these disciplines provide you actually with the opportunity, you know, to perhaps question the assumptions of your age rather than just use them to look at works um we it, you know we yeah i suppose that that's essentially why i wanted to talk about uh, talk about progress and, and, and evolution and i think you can relate that to um to an, uh, an obsession with innovation you know that you find also in the university these days um is that really such a a great thing for the arts if you're continually innovating um you know, one only has to look around at what, what is supposed to be cutting edge architectural, cutting edge poetry today made by fifth generation modernists, you know, and, and one begins to think, you know, as much as Ezra Pound was rebelling against people who wanted to be like Keats, who was writing in the 1820s, by the 1920s, that seemed like a rather tired thing to do. I wonder by the 2020s whether trying to make it new in the manner of Ezra Pound and T.S. Eliot is actually lo looking ra rather stale, paradoxically, also, and, and the very thing that we kind of need to address and, and rethink. Well, I think this question of what evolution and progress really mm. is connects to a point you previously made about the value of humanities, because mm. with scientific subjects, with maths, with mm. subjects which have more rigid lines, it's very easy to to chart progress and say mm. this has changed, this has changed, this has changed. All, always new technology is being developed, which changes everything. Yeah. With humanities, it's very different. You, you don't have the same technological drive always pushing things forward. That's it. And that leaves humanities in a position, like you said, where it's trying to struggle for its position, trying to have to I, prove its value and its worth. I, I agree. Um, I can see absolutely the importance of progress and innovation. If if you're in, you know, designing drugs and 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 you know, involved in biochemistry and 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 if you're making gadgets, um, but you know, it's it's I think a slightly p pernicious obsession in in the arts. 
And I think actually, paradoxically, it kind of makes them servile and less innovative. Um, the works with which you're engaged, you know, if you're in my disciplines, are already ahead of you. You know, they're traditional works. If they're any good, they come out of the future. You know, they're, they're eternal. You know, and they're already free of time and space. And that, that place is already and always ahead of us. They, they don't exist in the past. And you kind of need to work out a way of engaging in a dialogue with the futurity in that sense. But that's not the kind of innovation that's required, I think, of scholars, you know, when that's touted, you know, um, in the university manifestos and, and all of that. So I'm, I'm deeply concerned about the relationship of the future to the past or the past to the future. Um, but I'm more inclined probably to think about it in terms of Augustine's meditations on time at the end of the Confessions or Kierkegaard's transmutation of platonic recollection into repetition than I am to think about it in terms of just continually churning out original lines of inquiry or new, new things, new contexts for older works. So, Edward, we move on to the final section, the cutting yeah. edge. And we've inspired our discussion here by a little bit of an article. Uh, so this article is mm. from Times Higher Education, oh, yeah. and it's all about the marketplace of universities. Just to mm. give a little bit of an extract from the piece, mm. universities must innovate to adapt and succeed. The stakes are higher than ever before. UK universities now operate in an environment that has many though not all of the characteristics of a market. They compete for students, compete for staff, compete for research funding, compete for league table standings, compete for TEF awards. This is a kind of springboard, Edward, for you to tell us about your view of what universities could and perhaps should be doing these days. Yeah. So th that, I mean, that, that article in, in many ways describes a university as an illiberal place. Um, and you could, in the medieval period, make a distinction between the liberal and the illiberal arts. And, and in many ways, I think the universities have become illiberal and have sort of turned their back on the liberal arts. I mean, that's just a fact in, in terms of the way departments and syllabi, et cetera, have developed. Um, I think in many ways, this has to do with the rise of science and science becoming accommodate, natural philosophy turning into modern science and that becoming such a dominant part of the university. And I think what's happened, that the rise of that has pulled the university into the realm of the polytechnic. And so I think modern universities are essentially polytechnics, um, places where you are taught sciences and skills that will allow you to get a job. They're essentially servile to employment at the end of it. But the medieval university, the university whose seven liberal arts are still written above the doors of the school's quad here in Oxford, you know, the trivium of grammar, logic and rhetoric and the quadrivium of, you know, arithmetic, geometry, music and astronomy. Um, the, these are skills, sciences, arts that are designed to make you a free man. You know, as, as Christ said, know, know ye the truth and, and the truth will free you. You know, you would pay to have a teacher. You would not expect to get a job at the end of this. This seven-step process was probably a means of initiation into the mysteries uh, and, a, you know, uh, each of the, the, the liberal arts being a kind of heaven or staging post on the way to a fuller apprehension of God and a 
you know, a, a means of fully individuating yourself in, in, in that context, discovering a greater self within, if you like, um, le le leading ultimately to the sort of high, high degree of, of divinity. Um, that, that kind of um, liberal arts education has basically vanished, I think, from the university. And the, the kind of ruins of that, you know, in my, my disciplines, and elsewhere, I suppose, sort of held up so that the name university can still be used. But Oxford is really not functioning as it would have done in the 13th or 14th centuries. So, I mean, that's the, that's the state of play. I, it, when I read that article, I think to myself, well, why should a university have to compete? Why should a university have to follow after, be tied to the heels of a culture which seems to be in a kind of decadent freefall surely a university should stand up as a as a kind of bastion or 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 a place which which can actually help us get out of that and and not not fo follow after every other fad um and so i would sort of advocate a university which frees itself of the market and competition and upholds actually more traditional values if you like which ultimately come out of the future it's a fundamental question of what is the place of the university in a society that's constantly changing around it? Yeah. And, and, and should it, as you suggest, sort of enslave itself to driving mm. forces within the wider society or, or should it be a place where higher ideals? Well, that's it. And of course, I'm not involved in running a university. I just make a living on the fringes of it. And, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm not thinking about student numbers coming in and I'm speaking as a poet and an idealist, but I feel like a university is, is a place where the poet and the idealist should be able to kind of free himself, you know? Um, and to a certain degree, it's possible within, you know, the disciplines of English literature and art history, but I feel like they could reinvent themselves and fully individuate themselves actually. So, so, so that the culture can be kind of helped rather than followed. Okay, Edward, we head into the final section mm. and ask you, what's your hope for the future of your work and research? Well, um, one hopes with the poetry that, as Van Gogh would say, it's been laid down like wine and that it just improves with age. <laughs> <laughs> but time will tell. In my art history um, book, I, I, I hope to find a kind of quite wide audience for that and get it on the syllabi of university courses and a-level courses um and i and i hope that people will read that and rethink their their relationship with with art um so that's a book i'm I'm looking forward to producing um this year and actually marketing and promoting a bit and how can our listeners reach you if they'd like to learn more about your works and what you do well I, there is a, a website of mine which just sort of lists the books i have my books are available on amazon and other <laughs> Um, websites um, and they can also find out about the courses that I teach on the, the website of the Department for Continuing Education. So your website Edward the name is? I think it's just Edward James Clark WordPress is, is probably enough to take you to it. Fantastic Edward thank you so much for joining the research beat today it's been an absolutely fascinating conversation. Thank you very much for having me. One, two, three, four.
To discover more of the research you love, listen to academic papers, take notes and share. Sign up for your free trial of Audemic at audemic.io or follow us on Twitter, LinkedIn and Instagram.